millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From the global headquarters of AccuWeather, this is Everything Under the Sun, our weekly podcast with stories and information about the weather and climate. With information that you can use to help plan your way through the coming days, this is the fourth in our special summer series as we get ready to make the turn from June to July on the calendar. While some of us are starting to realize some of the benefits from early work in our own vegetable and fruit gardens, our nation's farmers have done most of their planting and now are doing everything in their power to ensure good yields and prices for those crops and commodities when it comes to harvest time in the fall. We thought it'd be a good time to check in with the United States Department of Agriculture for their latest guidance on some of those numbers in our opening spotlight segment. And of course, as we continue to fight COVID-19 and the pandemic, in the midst of it all, we are seeing rising food prices. So we'll take that conversation from the USDA and start a roundtable discussion with some of our AccuWeather meteorologists, including Dave Samuel and Jim Kander, and find out what AccuWeather has been thinking in terms of not only growing situations in the growing season, but commodity yields and pricing as we go through this growing season of summer. And we'll combine two goals into one segment as we close out this week's episode. We'll talk to hurricane expert Dan Kotlowski. First, he'll give us an update on Saharan dust and the current hurricane season and where it's going here one month in. And like we always do, we'll get you ready for the weather this coming weekend and in the days ahead, as you can be prepared to enjoy everything this summer season has to offer. Friends, join me now as it's time to talk about everything under the sun. Over the last three months, while the world has fought COVID-19 and this pandemic, it's kind of been hard not to be impressed and certainly relieved that the system by which Americans get their food has not had any major disruptions. Certainly part of that enterprise is the ability for Americans and the world to grow crops of vegetables and fruits that form the backbone of our food industry. Certainly food prices have been on the rise, but that's mainly been from supply chain and workforce challenges in recent months. But we wondered, is the weather going to be helping or hurting as this summer growing season wears on? So as we make that turn from planting to growing season, it's time to welcome into everything under the sun, Mark Chekanowski. He's the chairman of the USDA's World Agricultural Outlook Board that prepares the monthly World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates, or the WASDE report, that updates monthly the forecasts of supply, planting, projected yield, and other ideas about the major commodities, crops, and agricultural products produced here in the United States and across the world. Mark, thanks for taking the time to join us. Uh, first of all, let's talk about you know the USDA, like so many governmental agencies, big, broad, lots of things going on. Let's talk about the division that you work in and and this product, the WASDE. Um, talk a little bit about the World Agricultural Outlook Board and what they're trying to do in terms of informing the public about our agricultural situation here in the United States. So I work for the World Agricultural Outlook Board, and we are a a fairly small agency housed within the office of the chief economist at USDA. 
And our primary role is to compile and release monthly the World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates Report, also known by its acronym WASD. We're a relatively young agency. We came into existence in the um, early 70s, 1973, and we were created to help to pull together all of the information from across USDA on commodity market conditions for all of the major commodities. And as you noted, USDA is a very big agency, lots of different, a very big department, lots of different agencies doing different things. So what we do at the World Board is really try to bring in the expertise, the primary expertise from the different agencies and coordinate among all of these agencies, folks like the Foreign Agricultural Service who looked at crop conditions overseas and the economic research service that does a lot of economic modeling and the farm service agency that runs various agricultural programs. All of these different agencies have their own niche and they're all looking at different parts of the agricultural economy. And we bring them all together kind of into the same room and monthly put this report together that kind of provides one consensus overview of market conditions for all of the major agricultural commodities that uh, that we produce in the U.S. and that we trade nationally and internationally. So you're looking at the, the supply going into the season, how much you think that the farmers and agriculture is going to plant at that specific uh, commodity, and then you're looking at hopefully forecasting the yield and then going into saying at the end of the season, how much is going to be in stores. Uh, So you're kind of looking at the life cycle of each of those commodities, which are really the building blocks of our agriculture and our food and those kinds of things. We're talking right about like soybeans, corn, cotton, wheat, any others that I'm missing there? Oh, that's right. I mean, those are the big ones. So uh, soybeans, corn, cotton, wheat, rice, also livestock, beef and pork. Yeah, and and you're absolutely right. And we're looking at both the supply side of the balance sheet, estimates of what U.S. farmers are producing, and yield expectations to come up with an overall production estimate. And then the use side of the balance sheet as well, where all of that commodity is being used by the feed industry and food processors and ultimately turned into food that we eat. We try to capture both sides of the balance sheet and and it helps us to forecast what price expectations should be, whether there's big surpluses and low prices in some commodities and or, or you know impending shortages in others. And by the way, we do this both for the US and for uh, the world as a whole. So Clearly, for U.S. farmers, they're very interested in what you know we're producing here in the U.S., but most, really all of these commodities are traded internationally, so we have to look at the global side of the, uh, of the market as well and see what our competitors are producing in, in Brazil and the EU and Ukraine and you know, other major competing regions, and also what trade is, like how much commodities that are being purchased by China and being purchased by the EU. And, and, and that has implications for our own export demand and prices as well. 
Just uh, curious, Mark, how do you get all that information? I mean, um, or do you rely on people submitting information to you? Do you uh, do some people go out and do any site surveys? Uh, how do you determine something like the acreage of planting, for instance, as you go into a given season? Good question. So, yeah, so domestically, uh, so here in the U.S., we have an agency within USDA uh, known as National Agricultural Statistics Service, NAS. Their primary mission is to survey farmers, and they have dozens of different surveys that, that where they go out through mail surveys and in-person surveys and collecting information over the internet. And they ask farmers what they intend to plant. They put out a survey in March for planting intentions. They follow up with a survey at in June, which will actually come out with next week, which follows up with farmers in terms of what they actually planted and how that might differ from what they intended to plant. Uh, they measure acreage. They go out over the course of the summer as the crops are progressing. They, uh, they do yield surveys. So they actually go out physically and, and do test plots across different parts of the U.S. and and provide estimates of what those crop yields are. So we're, we're blessed with a, a large volume of information on U.S. crop production, which we use in our, in our balance sheets. And then on the international side, it's a little bit more, more complicated. We, uh, most other countries don't have nearly as much of a uh, comprehensive data collection effort like we do here in the U.S. So we, uh, we rely on some of the official statistics put out by other, other nations. And we also rely on a lot of things like satellite data and also just international weather data to help us determine or, or estimate what crop yields might be in, in different parts of the world. On the international side, we, we rely heavily on information from the Foreign Agricultural Service from their own people that are on the ground in those countries and pulling together whatever kinds of bits and pieces of information we can from dozens of different sources that we can find for those individual countries. Certainly then once uh, things are planted, obviously the next thing to kind of forecast is the amount of production and certainly weather has a big key on that. How much future weather consideration in terms of each year and each crop and each each situation, how much do you rely on the weather to determine those kinds of things? And how much do you have your own meteorologists that you use? Do you use other companies? What? Uh, how does the USDA do that? Right. So we have five staff meteorologists within the World Agricultural Outlook Board, and we rely on them on a daily basis to monitor uh, weather developments, both in the U.S. and, again, around the world. Each one of those meteorologists has a, an area of specialization globally, like we have one meteorologist that focuses on the EU, another one on South America, etc. We also have a meteorologist who focuses on the U.S. And weather, especially this time of year, obviously plays a critical role in determining what we can expect in terms of crop production. Just for an example, last year, from the spring through now, throughout the middle of the country, throughout much of the country, it was very wet, very cold. Farmers had a very hard time getting the crops in, so acreage was down for most of the major commodities. A lot of, a lot of acreage wasn't able to be planted. This year, in contrast, crops went in very smoothly for, across most of the 
major production areas. Good soil moisture and uh, and dry conditions for planting, which is what you want. Really good days for field work. So the crops went in uh, really ahead of schedule, well ahead of the, the five-year average. And therefore, so we're expecting this year acreage for most of the major commodities to be up reflecting the good weather. And to date, uh, even though it's been, you know, it's been dry in some parts of the country recently that has, you know, caused some concerns about excessive dryness. In most cases, timely rains have been coming through to support what we think should be a, at least as of right now, of course, weather can change quickly, but as of right now, it indications are you know are suggesting that supplies are going to be relatively abundant for most of the major commodities because of the the really good weather conditions that we're currently experiencing you know mark we uh took some time and really focused on uh, the fight against COVID-19 in in this podcast uh, up until a couple of weeks ago and then we kind of transitioned it in the summer but we're still talking about uh, the fight against COVID-19 and and how that's affecting things Obviously, it seemed like the prices, uh, at least from my point of view, going into the grocery store got somewhat higher. Um, how much is COVID-19 and its effects uh, getting involved into some of these uh, thoughts and the forecasts from your folks? And maybe back up a little bit, has it affected any of the, the process that you've gone through to try to get the information? And do you see it affecting uh, some of the things going forward in terms of prices over and above the effect of the weather? Well, I would say it hasn't really affected our processes in terms of putting together balance sheets and, and collecting this information, but it, it's certainly been, uh, you know, a unique and, you know, for us, an unprecedented challenge in trying to understand the implications of COVID-19 and the implications on eating habits and uh, food supply chain and how that translates into you know really price conditions for these different commodities and the pandemic and the economic slowdown associated with it has absolutely had some pretty substantial effects on commodity markets which have been showing up in our report i mean just as one example if you look at corn one of the biggest not the biggest but one of the biggest use categories for corn right now is uh is ethanol demand um, ethanol used in gasoline and right. uh, and with the uh, quarantines imposed and the kind of the lockdowns that have been that were put in place after the pandemic started to take hold transportation demand fell off a cliff so therefore ethanol demand fell off a cliff as well a lot of ethanol plants had to shut down or temporarily halt production and that has a direct effect on the demand for corn and on the price that farmers receive for corn, especially at those, at those local levels where they're selling to ethanol plants. Well, we talked about negative effects there, Mark. Are there any positive effects from COVID in terms of uh, things like uh, the ethanol? It was a, was a negative in terms of the farmers and production, but it's actually been a net positive in some ways for the consumer. For some commodities, you know, as the uh, quarantines went into place and eating habits started to change, we also saw increases in demand for certain commodities like wheat, for example, as more you know, consumers stopped eating out and started to prepare more food at home and stock up their own supplies. We saw 
pretty big surge in wheat demand uh, right at the beginning of the of, of these quarantines that went into place. And same thing with rice. So staple commodities. So people's eating habits changed, less food away from home, more food at home, more stocking up at food at home. You know, and that is something that's also showed up in the supply and demand balance sheets. And, and in some cases, actually supported the prices of some of these commodities beyond what we might have seen pre-COVID-19. Any fear going forward that the COVID fight against COVID-19 and, and, and the situation affects, you know, we're, we've been talking about planning because we're in the early part of the season, but a couple of months away, we're going to be in uh, reaping time, right? And so right. I think one of the concerns I know from folks who rely on people, you know, that have to come into the, the country to work and temporarily is there going to be a shortage of workers to get some of these crops in, even if they grow amazingly and have a, we have a bumper crop, some of these, is there, could there be a shortage? Is that something that you guys have been looking at in terms of folks that uh, will be around to uh, bring in these crops at the end of the year? That could certainly be an issue. Now, for most of the crops that we focus on in the WASDE, these tend not to be highly labor-intensive crops. They're heavily mechanized corn, soybeans, wheat, cotton. Uh, right. The big major crops that are, are easily automated in terms uh, easily of automated. and reaping. Right. Yeah. Right. Now, I, but but certainly for the, you know, for the fruit and vegetable industry, where they rely heavily on labor, oftentimes migrant labor, you know, that that's a sector of ag economy that we don't cover very closely, but certainly, you know, we've been seeing and hearing and, and, and reading about some of the labor challenges that they're facing. And also, you know, one of the areas where we do focus a lot is on the livestock sector. And a lot of the same type of labor is used in slaughter facilities. And many of the major packing houses have also had, you know, they've been challenged to keep staffing rates up and to keep production lines moving at good speeds because of labor concerns as well. So certainly these are issues. They're very hard to, to predict, very hard to uh, really, you know, come up with a, an expectation for, you know, where we'll be months or weeks from now. But uh, it's definitely a concern. So, Mark, when uh, we, the consumer, the average consumer, looks at these kinds of reports that come out, it, sometimes our heads can swim, right? You know, I look at this and I wonder, what does this really mean for me? Are these important things for the everyday person to keep track of? Or are these more industry insider numbers? Uh, talk a little bit about the, the aim and the goal for the information from uh, this report. So, the real purpose of this information is to help markets work more smoothly and more efficiently. The primary audience is, in fact, the people that are buying and selling these commodities on a regular basis. So it's the farmers that are producing them and the grain merchants that are that are purchasing the grain and maybe selling it to food processors. Typical consumer, if, if they picked up this report, let's face it, I mean, they would be seeing a lot of numbers, tables just full of numbers that might be difficult to to make sense out of, but it's important that the consumers know that these numbers are being uh, watched very closely by the people who produce their food, both the people who grow the food and who process it and who bring it to the retailers. And every segment along that supply chain is using these numbers to 
determine what prices to pay for the commodities and, and how much to purchase, how much to use. And ultimately, that's what helps to make our food supply so abundant and, and so affordable, just by getting that information out there to help the markets work more efficiently. Mark, thank you so much. Again, that's Mark Jekinowski, chairman of the USDA's World Agricultural Outlook Board. You can find information about Mark. You can find this upcoming WASD report that's coming out or the past WASD reports and anything else about the USDA at their website, usda.gov. You can look for Office of the Chief Economist in that section. When we come back to everything under the sun, we'll get the perspective that AccuWeather has on that information that the USDA SDA is giving us and our thoughts about the growing season. A big roundtable discussion with two gentlemen who look at long-range forecasting and agricultural concerns. Dave Samuel and Jim Kander join me next on Everything Under the Sun. Listen to Weather Insider every weekday for a discussion on trending weather news with me, Bernie Reno, and Evan Myers. You'll get detailed insight into major weather events and learn the why behind the weather. Just subscribe to Weather Insider on your favorite podcast platforms today. Welcome back to Everything Under the Sun. As we started our opening segment with Mark Chekanowski from the USDA, we want to continue our thought about agricultural prices and the forecast as it relates to the growing season here for our nation's farmers with a couple of guys who really um, look at this very closely. One is a member of our forecasting long-range team. You've already heard from him on this podcast in recent weeks, senior meteorologist Dave Samuel. And we give a special welcome to our former chief strategy officer, now retired from full-time work, but he's actively involved as one of our chief agricultural consultants, Mr. Jim Kander. Gentlemen, welcome to Everything Under the Sun. Great to have you two with us. Uh, I want to start a little bit with Dave. Dave, you looking at this uh, long-range forecast, you know, we've already, the new drought monitor came out here on this Thursday as we're recording this going into the weekend. And a couple of things that uh, hit to me is it's pretty dry in parts of the northeast of New England. Uh, and uh, there's other parts of the area that are starting to see some drought. So talk us through a little bit as we just talked to the USDA, talk us a little bit about through where AccuWeather thinks things are over the next couple of weeks when it comes to the weather as we get really into the prime growing season for most of the farmers. Yeah, absolutely. So we have seen some dryness uh, increase, even a uh, moderate drought now in New England, like you mentioned. Overall, uh, the uh, drought areas have seemed to avoid uh, most of the core agricultural regions, which are in the Midwest, anywhere from eastern South Dakota, southern Minnesota, on through Iowa, Illinois, and the Ohio Valley. Uh, some spots are dry. The uh, soil is a little bit on the dry side, but uh, we've had plenty of rain. Planning's been really good. There weren't a lot of flooding issues this spring like we had last year when that really halted and caused a lot of delays with the planning. So we have a lot of crop in the ground right now. Uh, has been a little bit of issue with the wheat in Kansas. There's been some um, some drought, also some cold. We had a freeze uh, back in April that caused some damage in Kansas, but it uh, looks like they've been able to bounce back to harvesting the wheat now, and it looks pretty good from uh, what I'm hearing. So uh, there are some drought areas, but overall, uh, weather has been pretty good uh, for most of the crop areas in the U.S. And then going forward, you know, we, we talked a lot about in this podcast in terms of uh, the long-range forecast, in terms of the summer being a long, hot summer. I think there's some fear that we get into the old Bermuda High where we get really just hot and, and, and dry, especially along the eastern seaboard and up into the 
the Northeast. Is that something that we're concerned about going forward, that there may be some areas that tend to burn out a little bit here as we get into the summer and, and heat up and, and not have as much moisture as they need? Yeah, there's a couple of areas we're watching. The Northeast is kind of a newer one that has been a developing. Uh, we have been uh, forecasting drier than average conditions, however, in July. Uh, so we're obviously still in June now, but in July, we've been forecasting a drier than normal month across most of the Northeast and a uh, warmer than uh, normal month. So we'll likely have some issues there. It's not a major crop area, but of course, uh, we have orchards and some some crops for sure across New England. Those uh, We could have some issues already getting a lot of burned up lawns. Another area will be the Northern Plains. I'm expecting some very dry weather to develop in July, eastern Montana into the Dakotas. That's a big area for wheat. They grow wheat there, uh, spring wheat specifically, which is planted in the spring and harvested in the fall. It's been pretty wet, so uh, crops doing all okay, although there is a little bit of drought on the latest drought monitor in um, portions of the western Dakota. So it looks like we will probably see that uh, drought expand through the summer. So that could be an issue uh, with wheat. But so far, we've seen a little more rain than expected uh, during the late spring into the early summer here. So also dry weather expected to develop in the northwest. Uh, We have drought in Washington and Oregon east of the Cascades. They grow a lot of wheat and some other crops. So that could be another uh, place that has some problems as uh, the Northwest drought should really increase through the rest of the summer. Now, uh, the other member of our roundtable is a gentleman who, uh, when he left and at his retirement, he was our chief strategy officer. And now he's one of our main uh, consultants when it comes to uh, something like agriculture. Jim Kander joins us. Um, Jim, you know, you've been doing this for a long time and looking at this kind of stuff. From the, the conversation with Mark and the USDA, what, what stood out to you and some of the things in terms of some of the strategies that you're using and some things that AccuWeather has used over the years to kind of help farmers and our clients get the best yield as you go through the summer? Well, first of all, I, was, uh, I thought Mark's interview was very good. Obviously, a consummate professional. We really don't have anything negative at all to say about the USDA and and the World Agricultural Outlook Board that Mark oversees. They they do a great job. Uh, The one thing that AccuWeather uh, brings, I think, to the table that uh, the USDA doesn't do is that we look farther out into the future on how weather's going to affect the crops. USDA, for the most part, gives their forecasts of yields and production and so on based on the weather up until the moment they make their reports. They may look a little into the future, but pretty much it is what it is up until then. We add that extra layer with Dave and our meteorologists to predict what's going to happen and how that's going to impact the crop yields, the crop production, and then potentially the prices based on that. So we're pretty much all in agreement that it was a pretty good planning season, all things considered here, with all the the problems that we saw early on. I mean, that frost in the Northeast was a real deal in April and the problems with the freeze and some of these drought issues. But overall, and COVID, I mean, we didn't even talk about that aspect of it. But overall, I mean, pretty good shape for the planning. Now we just have to kind of cross our fingers and hope things keep going well as we go through the growing season uh, in terms of the amounts of uh, available at the end of the growing season. That's right. The weather so far has been overall very good. Uh, and all signs are pointing to a good crop, assuming that the weather continues to be good for the next four to eight weeks, depending on the location. A couple of the differences that we have from the USDA is the amount of acreage that will be planted. We think that the USDA will eventually show uh, a decrease in the amount of corn acreage. Uh, we believe there'll be about 95 million acres. The USDA last predicted 97 million acres. 
So a little bit of a difference there. Conversely, we believe that the USDA will have to increase the amount of acreage that was planted in soybeans. They last predicted 83.5 million acres. Uh, we thought it would be 85.2. Uh, the USDA comes out with a new report on Tuesday the 30th, and our expectation is that they will make some changes decreasing the amount of corn, increasing the amount of soybeans. As far as the actual yield, and that's how many bushels per acre are produced, uh, we are a little more optimistic on the high side for yields with regard to soybeans compared to the USDA. Uh, we're predicting 51 bushels per acre. Uh, the USDA last predicted 49.8, so a little bit higher. Uh, we're both at the same level right now for corn, 178.5 uh, bushels per acre. Uh, if the weather does continue to be good, though, for the next uh, four or five weeks, which is really the critical time for corn, we could see that going up quite a bit up over 180, which would make it you know, the highest ever. And almost certainly this will be the biggest corn crop in history. And it almost seems like things are aligned for that in the next few weeks because a lot of the corn belt seems to be in that zone that may get frequent enough showers and thunderstorms here over the next couple of weeks where we meet those minimums, or which are what, about one to one and a half inches of rain per week in some of those areas? Or, or I'm, I'm not, what are the pretty numbers? close, yeah. So it looks like we're in good shape in the Corn Belt for sure. How about farther south and east where we could get longer stretches? Is that going to affect the soybeans and, and other crops like cotton and those things here as we go through the summer? Well, like uh, Jim alluded to, July is really important for corn. And if we get a hot, dry week, it might just take one week and that could significantly reduce the yield. So won't get as many bushels per acre. And that's not off the table yet. Uh, there is a lot of heat in this pattern. It looks like that heat's going to mostly be north of the Corn Belt. Um, seen a lot of ridging in Canada. I mean, obviously, we've had some high latitude heat. But the 100 degree temperature in Siberia uh, in recent days, well, uh, looks like we're going to have a big ridge uh, over the next couple of weeks, mostly centered in Canada, though. But if that sinks a little further south and we get a little extra dryness, it might not take a whole lot to throw things off. But right now, it does look like we will get adequate rainfall. Uh, most of the modeling is showing that. So just a, it's a really sensitive time for the corn here in the month of July. And uh, August expected to be a little cooler and a little wetter across the Midwest as a whole. And that's when soybeans are sensitive. So right now, now it does look like we're going to be okay, but we have a lot to look at the next couple of months. Certainly, I think one of the things that gives AccuWeather an advantage is not only do we have meteorologists, um, you know, been looking at this a long time, but we also have farmers meteorologists. We have a, a several of them that have done a lot of active farming and understand these processes, uh, not just looking at it from a scientific standpoint, kind of a fundamental standpoint as well. And I think, Jim, that's part of the AccuWeather advantage in terms of the kind of people that we've put together here at AccuWeather to, to look at those things with common day and everyday experience in, in these endeavors. That's right, Dean. Uh, we, we have that advantage. Uh, plus, we also have a pretty deep bench of uh, meteorologists who also specialize in commodities, understand the trading, the buying and selling of corn and soybeans and so on, uh, the supply and demand tables that Mark at the USDA talked about. We believe we have sort of the whole gambit of uh, different expertise to be able to make the best forecasts for anywhere from the farmers to the traders to the food companies and so on. You know, when we look at that, too, I think, you know, we can talk about the weather, but there are certain things that we can't uh, predict. And one is in terms of this COVID-19, I brought this up with Mark. One of the aspects that we may 
uh, have to deal with is shortage in terms of personnel and workforce to bring in these crops, especially as Mark said, in some of the, the more fruit and vegetable crops that rely more on migrant workers, not the big automated crops. And that could be something that we have no impact on in the weather and it may affect the price without the, the supply and demand coming into phase, right, Jim? That's exactly right. And you mentioned it and Mark mentioned it yesterday. That really should not be an issue for things like corn and soybeans and wheat and cotton, which is pretty much mechanized. But certainly for the fruits and vegetable, which are very manual intensive, that is where sort of the wild card is right now. There's just no way really we don't believe at this point to know how that's going to turn out. And it's something that will need to be watched. Dave, as a long range forecaster, how is it rewarding, challenging, somewhere in between when you're trying to look so far ahead? And sometimes it's hard to get the day one weather right in certain yeah. situations, but this is a, it's a tough thing. And, and I know we've got a great long range team and you're part of it to, to keep looking at these things. Yeah, it is, it is tough, Dean. Uh, you don't get that instant gratification of getting a forecast right. You have to wait. <laughs> and it can go down in flames, too. So, But, you know, overall, it, it's been a learning experience for me. I've been working closely with Paul Pasolak for the last uh, half a year, trying to learn as much as I can from him. He's been our uh, chief long-range forecaster uh, for uh, some time now. So it's, it's a learning experience. And uh, there's always new ways, new things you can look at in long-range forecasting. Uh, research papers coming out left and right. It's hard to keep up with it all, honestly. But um, it's... It is, it's very interesting, but uh, it, it is difficult. But again, it's something new for me, more or less. So I find it really interesting. So I'm looking forward to, you know, see how things go. And, uh, you know, we have a, an interesting forecast going forward. It's not just the um, rain in, uh, in the U.S. and the temperatures, but 2005 is an analog that keeps uh, poking up. And, you know, we'll see what happens. 2005 got busy in a hurry with hurricane season in July. You know, that, that we've been talking about that for the last six months. So we'll see. You know, hopefully it doesn't happen. But, you know, we're, we're getting more concerned as we head into July. <laughs> well, guess what? We have Dan Kudlowski coming up in just the next segment to talk. All about. right, perfect. See, it's all planning. It's all <laughs> anything else from you, Mr. Kander, as uh, we talk about the subject. When when should we check in again? Do you think uh, talking about this subject uh, is it mid to late August when we kind of get a guy idea of how the the harvesting may go? I would I would say there might be even be a, a, a step in between then. Uh, certainly by the end of August, we'll have a pretty good feel on how both corn, soybeans, and, and probably cotton will turn out, uh, as well as spring wheat. But we'll know more as we go along. Uh, I would say by the end of July, our historical uh, models should have a pretty good beat on what corn will be. And then by early August, a pretty good beat on what, what soybeans will do. One thing I would also add, Dean, is that uh, we look not only at the United States, but around the world. We have meteorologists that specialize in different parts of the world. Our commodity forecast team really looks at the crops and has for almost 40 years now uh, in the main growing areas of the world. And not only has the weather overall been very good in the United States, but really it's been good this year in most of the main growing areas around the world. China's having a good year so far. All signs are that the Indian monsoon is going to do well, and that, that bodes well for their production. Uh, Europe has a few issues here and there, but overall, it's pretty good. And uh, South America finished up a good year last year. Australia was the only area last year that kind of had a bad drought, and that really hurt their production. But uh, the long-range trends look favorable for the coming year in Australia. So overall, there's been a real lack of major problems 
perhaps luckily, for uh, world food supplies. Amazing how the world is dealing with COVID-19, and yet Mother Nature seems to have taken care of the food supply change, at least in the growing so far. So things we'll keep monitoring. And how about we do that check-in here as we get into the latter part of July? Gentlemen, thank you so much for spending time with me, Dave Samuel and Jim Kander. Glad to be with you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah, I definitely think we will take a look at that coming up later in July. Special thanks to Dave Samuel and Jim Kander for spending some time with us. As I promised, we will check in with Dan Kudlowski about hurricane season and the upcoming weekend forecast and the forecast for that time beyond as we roll from June to July on the calendar, the weekend forecast and the hurricane outlook coming up next on Everything Under the Sun. Make AccuWeather Daily a part of your daily routine. Enable the flash briefing and say, Alexa, what's my flash briefing? To access this content on Google Assistant, all you have to say is, Hey Google, talk to AccuWeather Daily. You'll get the top trending weather story of the day, every day. Welcome back to Everything Under the Sun as we get ready for another weekend, the last weekend in June, heading into July. And it's hard to believe that we started off our summer series already four episodes ago with this gentleman front and center, our hurricane expert, Dan Kutlowski. And Dan, it's been quite a hurricane season so far. We ramped up quickly. We were up to the sea storm in the Atlantic Basin. We just got the D storm named this week. Dolly came and went just as fast almost as Cristobal went. And now the Pacific uh, is heating up with three systems that we're watching there. So Kind of want to talk to you a little bit about uh, the hurricane season and where we are here a month in, and then also look ahead a little bit at the weekend. I guess the first story we should cover, and it really kind of relates to the hurricane situation, is all of the hype that we've heard about Saharan dust. Now, you know, Dan, and some of our listeners know that I have a partner who hails from Puerto Rico. I've spent time in Puerto Rico. So to me, the Saharan dusting isn't that uncommon because it's it's a fairly common occurrence. It just happens that this year, all of that dust, it's a large concentration, and the upper-level wind flow has taken it all the way to the United States Gulf Coast as we go through the early part of the weekend, and then up into the middle part of the country, we'll see some effects of that. Talk a little bit about that here as we head into this weekend. Yeah, so we had, we had a, a large cluster of thunderstorms move off the coast of Africa around June 14th, 15th. And that kicked up a lot of dust, and uh, that dust has worked uh, roughly 4,000 miles from the coast of Africa westward into the Caribbean. And as you point out, Puerto Rico and the Lesser Antilles got the brunt of the really deep, concentrated dust. Uh, Visibilities were down uh, less than a quarter of a mile in some places, and of course the sunsets were all mired by the uh, dust, and the dust is just really thick. Now, what has happened over the last uh, couple of days here is the dust has dispersed quite a bit, so it's not as concentrated, but the real concentration of the dust, at least one segment of it, is uh, over the Western Caribbean that will be moving into the Gulf of Mexico during uh, the next uh, couple of days here. So over the weekend, expect this dust to spread out across coastal and inland areas around Texas, uh, Louisiana, all the way around into Florida. 
So that's where the worst of the dust is going to be. The dust will spread a little bit further north. So places like in Oklahoma, Arkansas, Tennessee, maybe as far north as Missouri and Kentucky, they might see a little bit of dust. But the worst of the dust is going to be along the Gulf Coast. Hazy skies, uh, very low visibility at times. Not quite as much as what it was in Puerto Rico, but visibility is down like four or five miles. We've, we've already seen that on some of the uh, oil rigs in the Gulf of Mexico. But next uh, couple of days here, pretty uh, pretty nasty. And again, this will affect the uh, respiratory uh, issues that a lot of people have. Uh, so the air quality will go down to poor, at least down to poor in a lot of these places. Yeah, I think more so towards the coastal areas. I think as it diffuses more as you get farther north, as you said, towards uh, as far north as maybe the Tennessee Valley, Missouri, it's more of a visibility thing. Plus, in those areas, they had low humidity the last uh, or in the middle of this past week. And as we go into the weekend, their humidity values are up. So they would be hazy anyway, maybe harder to see that far north. Yeah. And I don't think the, uh, the situation will be uh, as bad in terms of air quality for them, at least in my opinion, that far north. But here is the other thing about the Saharan dust, Dan, is how much it kind of puts a kibosh on the Atlantic Basin here over the next week or so. Exactly. And what happens is we have a, a temperature inversion. Normally when the temperature, you go from the surface to the middle and upper levels of the atmosphere, the temperature cools off. But what happens in an inversion is you get this break and actually the air actually starts, actually warms up a little bit. And the dust just enhances that what we call trade wind inversion. And that puts a, a, a real a big uh, lid on a thunderstorm uh, production. And so we have these tropical waves moving across uh, the Atlantic into the Caribbean. In order for them to develop, they have to have thunderstorms, which reduce the pressure and create the low-level rotation. That's not going to happen. And this dry air and dust is going to shut that down. There's also some very strong shear uh, coming the opposite direction from west to east. Yeah, so right now the, the Atlantic is pretty much shut down for at least the next uh, next week or so. And then uh, the, the focus has shifted to the eastern Pacific. Uh, three systems out there, we've been joking here, uh, you know, they designate the probability about whether they're going to become a full-fledged tropical storm name system. And there's color coding. And so we kind of joke about red, yellow, orange. Look, right now, of the three systems out in the Pacific, which is the one that you're most concerned with as we head into the upcoming weekend and early next week? Yeah, I think the uh, it's actually the one that's actually the one the one that's yellow right now seems to be the most problematic because it's going to develop probably in the next two or three days. Is that the most central one? There's there's that's three. no actually the the central one is gone now. It's falling oh, okay. apart. And there's another one out there a few hundred miles off the coast of Alcapoco. It probably will try to wrap up, but. It's even, it's getting too far north. There's a lot of dry air north of 15 north, um, you know, just southwest of Mexico. And that's the problem with this area is it just, systems can't wait. They have to develop further south near 10 degrees north, like around Panama, off the coast of Panama, off the coast of uh, Guatemala. So that's where this next system I was just talking about, even though it's a yellowed area, uh, because it's not even together yet, it offers a much better chance for development. And again, that wouldn't be until sometime during the weekend or, or early next week. But the problem there is it could be a lot closer to the coast. I'm just telling people to keep an eye on that, uh, anyone along the coast there. All right. So I think the key points as we look at the uh, tropics right now, got some action in the eastern Pacific. That's the more likely spot for development because of the wind shear and the Saharan dust issues in the 
Atlantic Basin, probably uh, another week or two till this part of the Atlantic Basin sorts itself out and gets maybe riper for some development? Yeah, believe it or not, uh, some computer models are actually suggesting that the dust will settle out around the middle of next week and not, not be as much of a problem. And a very strong tropical wave that's currently moving off the coast of Africa right now works westward. And if it manages to avoid a lot of the dust and gets into the Caribbean uh, later next week, it's very possible that we could have an opportunistic situation there around the Yucatan, uh, Northwest Caribbean, unfortunately, during the uh, upcoming 4th of July weekend. I mean, computer models are suggesting it could be something coming up through the Gulf, uh, maybe like uh, July 3rd or even July 4th. Again, that's far out. Again, sometimes these models are overzealous on these ideas, but certainly that's an area we're keeping an eye on right now. Yeah, because the water right around the Yucatan and uh, the southern part there of the Gulf of Mexico is still really warm. It's not as warm as it gets up towards the Gulf Coast of the United States. So if something does move in that direction, it may limit its possibilities. But certainly, as we go through this next week and into the 4th of July weekend, you're going to want to keep tuned to AccuWeather.com. Talking with hurricane expert, uh, lead of our tropical forecasting team, Dan Kotlowski. Normally in this segment, though, Dan, we talk a little bit about this upcoming weekend and into the early part of next week. And it's been amazing. I think we started to see some of a pattern shift here where we were kind of more blocked. We were getting stuck with systems. But now it seems things are flowing more freely, warmth and humidity, trying to, after getting a little break in the upper Great Lakes and Northeast towards the end of this past week, Looks like that's going to start building back into the Northeast and showers and thunderstorms again are going to be a problematic thing at times in some parts of the country. So we head into the weekend, it looks like upper Midwest could see some rounds of pretty nasty stuff into the Northeast and down in the Southeast, we could have some problems again. Yeah, again, we're going into that pattern where we had this huge upper level high pressure area that was in place over the um, Southwest United States. And that system kind of has broken down now. And as a result... That's given the the uh, pattern more of a progression now, but it's also allowed warmer temperatures to come up into the central and eastern United States as we normally see as we get into July. So what uh, I find interesting, again, is is how still how fluid the, the weather pattern looks across the country. So uh, again, uh, no big drought areas except for the southwest U.S. And also the Northeast is starting to get a little bit of just it, the drought true. monitor came out as we're recording this uh, Thursday. And so uh, parts of New England are starting to get a little dry. And of course, that goes into the conversation that we were talking earlier in this podcast about uh, crop situations. And you can go back to that uh, with Jim Kander. I guess, you know, obviously when things are tending more warm in the east, the way it works in our lower 48 is things out west tend to get a little cooler. And it looks like the West has a pattern change with cooler air coming down from the Pacific Northwest towards the Southwest part of the United States. That's correct. And again, uh, like I said, this is all kind of falling into place with the summer, but I think you brought up a very good point there. When when you don't have a pattern which brings you good uh, precipitation in the springtime, that can often be very problematic in the summer because that means uh, you've lost an opportunity to get things going, you know, and it's very easy to go into a pattern where you don't have a lot of precipitation during the summertime. And so, uh, yeah, so we'll have to watch those areas. Yeah. And, you know, that old wives still drought breeds drought. I think it, it's, you know, yep. he's been off to a dry start and then the, the atmosphere, you know, 
it's not always just the atmosphere. It's what's characteristic on the ground and that that helps trigger what's above it. And so all of those things. So any key things that you're going to be watching here as we go through this weekend and early next week that are going to keep your interest in the weather, Dan? Yeah, I think the one thing I'm, I'm going to be watching very closely is, again, is the Bermuda-Azores high-pressure area out in the Atlantic. It's nosing very, very abruptly uh, into the uh, Gulf of Mexico right now. It's the reason why the, the Saharan dust is going to get wrapped around that. The denser dust is going to stay in the, into the deep south there. Will that high stay ridged in there? And if it does, it will keep all these tropical waves way south and whatever comes through the Caribbean will get shoved into Central America, will not have an opportunity to come northward. So that's what I'll be looking at as we go into the next five to 10 days. And that also then uh, gets into where we are talking about this long, hot summer in the eastern part of the United States. If uh, the old Bermuda High, which we used to talk about when we were when we were kids, right? That right. was the, the way we talked about it. The old Bermuda High builds in. It could be a long, hot summer. Dan, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for all your hard work. And we'll catch up again in a few weeks. Okay, Dean. Remember that you can go back to our first episode in our summer series and you can hear Dan's entire forecast for the 2020 hurricane season and his comments there. And make sure you check in every day on the latest thinking about the tropics. We've got that covered in stories on our AccuWeather.com website or your AccuWeather app. You can check in with our AccuWeather TV network or any of our AccuWeather media partners. Friends, that does it for this week's episode. As we come into next week's episode, we'll get you ready for the Independence Day holiday weekend. I know I'm already dreading not being part of this big celebration that I've been blessed to be part of over the last 10 years, the New York City's Macy's Fireworks Spectacular. If I can't be there in person, at least I can check in with my two dear friends, Sonia Rincon and Larry Mullins from our great radio station, 1010 Winds in New York City, about what life is like in the Big Apple as we get into this middle summer holiday weekend and as the city tries to return itself to normalcy slowly over the next couple of months. We'll also check in with Dr. Eric Fisher. I thought it'd be a good time to bring Dr. E back to talk about that disappointment I'm having as we head to another major holiday with restrictions and travel and life. We'll also get the latest read on whether or not mosquitoes will be a bigger pest than usual in the spots that you might frequent this summer. And we'll get that boat and beach report and mountain report on the forecast as we head into that first weekend in July. Friends, if you have a question, comment, or story suggestion, actually the mosquito story for next week is a suggestion that came to us at our email address, accuweather.podcast at accuweather.com. Again, if you'd like to contact us with a question, a comment, or suggest something you'd like to hear about, accuweather.podcast at accuweather.com. Special thanks to executive producers Ken Prell and Andrew Robb, and once again, always proud to represent our amazing team members here at AccuWeather and accuweather.com who work very hard to keep you prepared every day for the changing conditions and challenges that the weather provides us every day. For all of us with AccuWeather, I'm meteorologist Dean DeVore. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you next week on Everything Under the Sun. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.